The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. This is part 2 in our series called Joshua Generation. And it's my conviction that the Lord is wanting to raise up an entire generation of Joshua's. Now, who was Joshua? He was the guy who was responsible for leading the Israelites into the promised land and taking possession of the promises of God. And, and so there are these promises that God has spoken over our lives as well. And I believe the Lord is wanting to raise up a generation of believers who are filled with courageous faith, who want to take down some Jerichos and giants and lay hold of the promises that God has spoken over us. The title of my message for you today is learning how to linger in the presence of the Lord. And I don't know if there's a more important topic or subject that we could spend our time considering together. Last week, we kicked off the series by talking about the power of prayer, this indispensable weapon that God has given to us to thwart the attacks of our enemy and take him out. And today we're going to learn from Joshua about lingering in the presence of God. Now let's just tease out that word linger. What does that mean? Here's a definition for you. It means to stay in a place longer than necessary because of a reluctance to leave. You ever just been someplace and you're just in no hurry to leave? That's what lingering is all about. It's not a concept that fits easily into today's fast-paced and hectic world. I mean, who has time to linger, right? There are places to go and appointments to keep and things to do. We live in a world where our schedules tend to be jammed with more tasks than there are hours in a day. And in a world like that, lingering feels like a luxury that we don't have the ability to access, but that's exactly what makes it necessary. You see, so many of us live at a pace that is unsustainable, and it's starting to show. Researchers have found that the current generation of Americans are among the most anxious, stressed out, and depressed in history. Now, obviously, I'm sure there are a number of contributing factors that are fueling this crisis but one of them has to be our unwillingness to slow down and to rest. A story helps illustrate the point. There's a, a, an old story about a group of European missionaries who were serving on the field in Africa. And they hired a, a, a local group of villagers as porters to help them carry their many supplies. After pushing fast and hard for several days, the porters told the missionaries that they couldn't go on until they had had an entire day to rest. When the missionaries inquired what the problem was, one of the porters responded, we've traveled so far and so fast for so many days that we must wait here for our souls to catch up to us. I think that story resonates with a lot of us. I don't know if it hits home with you, but it certainly does so with me. I mean, we tend to hit the ground running as soon as we wake up and we go hard all day until our heads hit the pillow that night. And, and so we need time for our souls to catch up. And the place that God has designed 
for our souls to be refreshed and to be restored is his presence. Now, all of that leads us into our text this morning. Begin reading with me there in Exodus 33, verse 7. It says, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone, anyone, anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Can we just talk for a minute about this beautiful invitation that that the Lord extends to his people. This is an invitation to meet with God. And you can go ahead and fill in the blank in your outline this morning. Notice how our text says this is something Moses used to do, which would imply that it was part of his regular routine. As the Israelites journeyed from place to place. They were a nomadic tribe making their way from Egypt to the promised land. And so they would camp as the presence of the Lord led them. And whenever they set up camp, the first order of business for Moses was erecting this tent of meeting. Now, you should note that this tent is not the tabernacle that you read in other parts of your Old Testament. This tent was the precursor to that place where sacrifices were offered and where worship happened. Now, we are, Moses identifies the purpose of this tent. It was to give anyone who wanted to inquire of the Lord a place where they could go and do that. So if you had questions, or you needed guidance, or you were seeking wisdom concerning something that was going on in your life, or perhaps if you just wanted to spend time worshiping and communing with the Lord, you could go to this tent and seek the Lord. It was an open invitation. Everyone was welcome. I mean, it always feels good to be invited to places, doesn't it? Well, here's an invitation from the Lord. Just come on out to this tent. I'd love to spend time with you. Notice too how it says Moses would set the tent up outside the camp, some distance away. Now that seems kind of inconvenient, doesn't it? Why not just set the camp, the tent up right there in the heart of the camp? That would have made it easily accessible. And yet, while that might make practical sense, it would also mean that the, the people who found their way to the tent to meet with the Lord, they would become easily and unnecessarily distracted with kind of the hustle bustle of life. You might be tempted to just drop by on your way to wherever else you were going and only spend a couple of minutes. And so Moses purposefully puts the tent some distance away. Not only did it ensure that those who came were there for the, the sole purpose of seeking the Lord. It weeded out those who were coming with mixed motives. But in addition to that, it also helped cut down on unnecessary distractions. And so as I think about this scene, you know, you would see moms and dads or students perhaps leaving the camp of Israel and, and you'd say, oh, they're making their way out to the tent of the Lord. It was a bit inconvenient. It was out of the way, but it was something that certain individuals learned to prioritize. And I suppose in that sense, you all remind me of those Israelites. After all, here you are. You had to make an effort to be here today. And some of you, this is like Moses, this has become part of your weekly rhythm and routine. And I just want to acknowledge that fact because it's not always convenient to be in the house of the Lord. For some of you, you drove a great distance to get here and you had to get up early and you had to go out of your way, just like those Israelites. And for all of us, 
I mean, we live in San Diego. The weather is still beautiful. I, my wife was showing me, uh, uh, you know, uh, an Instagram post from some friends in Parker, Colorado, where we lived prior to, move, to moving back to San Diego, and, and it's snowing in, in Colorado right now. I mean, I'm just like, honey, doesn't that look cold? I think we should go to the beach just to celebrate tomorrow. What do you say, you know? And I say all that to make this point. We, we live in a place where we have access to all kinds of wonderful things, and there's a lot of stuff you could be doing, but you've chosen to be here. Why? Oh, because you've learned to value the presence of the Lord over and above everything else. Like the psalmist, you're those who say, one day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. But even in saying that, I want to I draw out the definition of, of what it means to seek the presence of the Lord. We need to define terms because perhaps you're wondering, aren't we always in the presence of the Lord, right? Isn't God everywhere? And the answer, of course, is yes. He's omnipresent. He's ever-present. And by the way, if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit doesn't live in this building. He goes with you wherever you go. He's not, he doesn't draw near to you on your good days and then depart from you when you slip into sin. No, no, no. Jesus said this. He said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. What that means is God's presence in your life never changes. So why then would we need to seek the presence of the Lord? For this reason, while God's presence never changes, our experience of that presence, our awareness of that presence often does change. So I want to draw out this distinction between the Lord's abiding presence and his manifest presence. Let's talk about the manifest presence of God. When God manifests his presence, the God who is always there, already there, suddenly becomes discernible and tangible and close. You ever walked into a room and immediately felt a shift in the atmosphere? Like you're just like, whoa, I feel like presence in this room. Sometimes I'll hear, I'll talk with people who share that testimony with me about this place. And they're like, I just came into the, during the worship set and I just began to weep. And I was like, that's the presence of the Lord. There's something holy happening in this space. We see an example of this shift in atmosphere happen in the life of a man named Jacob in the book of Genesis. He's running through this field and he, he lays down and he falls asleep and, and he has this dream and in his dream he sees a ladder extending from heaven to earth and on the ladder he sees the angels of God going up and down and he wakes up the following morning and he says, whoa, surely the Lord is in this place and I didn't know it. He, he came into an awareness of God's presence. Now God, of course, was already there but in that instant, Jacob became aware. And that's what we want to do when we gather like this. We want to come into an experience of God's manifest presence. It's, it's the goal of not only this gathering, but of all of our gatherings. The goal is the same. The agenda never changes. We just want to get into the Lord's presence. So what should you do and what can you do if you want to experience more of God's manifest presence in your life? And I find this text extremely helpful in that regard. The first thing we learn from Moses' example is that you need to start by making spending time with God a priority in your life. Pretty simple. 
But notice again, it's something Moses used to do. It wasn't a one-time thing or a once-in-a-while thing or a, a sometimes thing, but it was a part of his regular rhythm and routine. And that speaks to this idea. One of the recurring themes that you see in Scripture is that God goes where he's wanted. God is waiting to be wanted, and he inclines his ear, and he bends his neck, and he looks down from heaven, and he says, who is really seeking me in order that I might come to them? James chapter 4, verse 8 says it like this. I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. It's in our notes. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Notice in the first half of that verse, who the onus falls on. Falls on us, doesn't it? It doesn't say, come near to God and he might come near to you. No, it says, come near to God and he will draw near to you. That's a promise and you can take it to the bank. But it's also a bit troubling because what are we to do? Well, simply this. It means that we and not he are the determining factor in how close to God we are at this very moment. You say, I want more of the Lord. Well, you have as much of the Lord as you really want. A story illustrates the point. I heard a story about a married couple. They were riding down the road in the guy's old pickup truck. It was one of those trucks that has a bench seat in the front. Neither one was really talking to the other, and they were in a bit of a fight. And finally, in a huff, the, the wife who's looking out the window looks over to his husband on the other side of the bench seat, and she says, what happened to us? We used to ride all snuggled up. You'd put your arm around me and hold me close, but we're not that way anymore. What happened? And after a moment of silence, the husband calmly observed, I'm not the one who moved. So true. In our relationship with the Lord, and we say, what happened to us? I'm not as close with you as I used to be. And God says, guess who moved? And all it takes is effort on our part, a, a commitment, a doubling down in our efforts to seek him. Because when you seek him with all of your heart, you will find him. The other thing you must do if you want to encounter more of the Lord's presence is learn how to eliminate outside distractions. Now, for the Israelites, that meant going outside the camp, taking a walk. For you, it might look a little different. It might mean getting up earlier than the rest of the house or making yourself unavailable for a bit so you can prioritize the presence. Also, I think it would be helpful to put your phone on do not disturb. Somebody say amen. <laughs> or better yet, just put your phone away completely. I saw this troubling statistic just the other day as I was preparing this message. On average, we touch our phones 2,617 times a day. That's a lot of scrolling and swiping and tapping. And then I thought of this question. What if we sought to touch the heart of our Father as many times a day as we touch our phones? I mean, our world would be radically different, but not just globally, so too personally. Just reaching out and, and, and setting a, a space and a time where we can seek the heart of the Father. We're far too distracted, and it's hindering our ability to deeply connect with the Lord. We need to learn how to disconnect so we can connect with God. So we have this invitation. God invites us to come to him. 
But now in verses 8 through 11, we get to see what happens when we draw near. Let's read on in verse 8. And when Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. And whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshiped each at the entrance to their tent. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. The second invitation is an invitation to draw near to God. That's what we see modeled by Moses. I mean, imagine this scene as it unfolds. It might have been, it must have been quite the spectacle. Moses, you know, he heads off for his morning devotions at the tent of meeting and word starts to spread. And before long, all of Israel is standing with eyes wide, waiting to watch this scene play out. After Moses goes into the tent, the cloud, the cloud that represented the, the, the presence of God that would lead the Israelites through the wilderness, that cloud would in some form come down and form a pillar over the tent and it would cover the space where Moses was. And then the Lord would begin to speak to Moses face to face as one talks to a friend. God didn't address Moses like he was an employee, he didn't just give him a list of commands. He didn't bark orders at him as though God were a drill sergeant and Moses were enlisted. He spoke with him like a friend. You know, on that point, I, I believe there's a lot you can discern about a person's walk with the Lord based on how they pray, how they relate to the Lord. I think a lot of us, we talk to God as though he were the big CEO in the sky and we come in with our validating performance record. I've had a pretty good week, Lord. And so here are the things I need you to do. do, And here are the things I'm working on. And by the way, I wouldn't mind a raise. Others of us treat God like he's an emergency responder. The only time we pick up the phone and dial his number is when there's some crisis that erupts or breaks out in our lives. And so we have all of these different ways. Other of us, we treat God like, you know, he's a business partner. And so for us, prayer is very transactional. And we think if we come in and we, we, we follow the formula, we go through the steps and we end our prayer in Jesus name, that he's somewhat obligated to, to do what we've told him or commanded him or asked him to do. But that's, that's not the heart of prayer. Prayer is not transactional. Prayer is primarily supposed to be relational. It's not about getting through a formula. It's about developing a friendship. You see, the way the Lord spoke with Moses as a friend, that's how God wants to speak into your life. Jesus said it like this to his disciples. This is John 15, verse 15. 15. Let's go ahead and read this together out loud. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. Just think about how you talk to your friends. My guess is there doesn't always have to be some big agenda that you're working your way through. I mean, sometimes it's just enough to be in their presence. You don't even need words at all. And that's what God wants with us. He wants to develop an intimate an ongoing friendship. This is how you work your way towards that goal of praying without ceasing that Paul talked to the Thessalonians about. It becomes this ongoing thing where you just pick up the conversation where it last left off. 
And so Moses communes with the Lord and all of Israel watches. And then they begin to worship. But notice where they worship from. They worship at the entrance to their own tents. Now, that's a beautiful picture, I suppose, in some sense. But it's also sad. It's sad because, as I already pointed out, anyone who wanted to could have gone with Moses right into the tent of meeting. Yet these Israelites chose to worship from afar. Why do you suppose they did that? I don't know for sure, but I have a hunch that their reluctance to draw near had a lot to do with the events that transpired in the scene just prior to the one we're reading about here. You see, while Moses and Joshua were up on top of Mount Sinai in the presence of the Lord, receiving the instructions concerning the tabernacle and the stones with the the Ten Commandments written on them, the rest of Israel waited at the base of the mountain. Now, Moses and Joshua were up there for some time. We know 40 days. And so as the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned over into a new month, they wrongly assumed that Moses and Joshua must have died up there. What happens next in the story is as appalling as it is shocking. They take all of their gold and all of their jewelry and they throw it into the fire and they take the molten gold and they have an artisan craft the shape of a calf and they begin to dance and worship this golden calf and they say, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. And there's this great tumult and Joshua hears it from on the top of the mountain and he thinks that there's a war that's broken out in the camp. And so Moses and Joshua, they come running back down only to find Israel worshiping a golden calf. Moses is incensed. He takes the the two tablets with the Ten Commandments that have been written by the finger of God and he breaks them on the ground. Then he takes the golden calf and he pounds it into dust and scatters the dust on the waters and he makes the people drink it. And they're repentant. They said, we didn't know. And, and my guess is because this scene happens on the heels of that episode, my thought is they don't feel worthy. And so they're, they're stricken with guilt and shame. And that's why they keep their distance here. They still want to worship, but they feel like they can't draw near. And so they stay back. And can I just suggest to you, this is always the effect that sin has on us. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned by rebelling against God and partaking of that forbidden fruit, what did they do? Their initial instinct was to run and hide from God. And so God comes and he begins to call out and he says, Adam, where are you? And that's what sin does. It makes you want to keep your distance You ever messed up in some way and you thought, oh, I can't read my Bible today, you know, not after what I did last night, or I can't go to church this weekend, pastor. You don't know the the kind of Friday night that I had, or I I can't worship today because I'm pretty sure God's not ready to see me yet, as though God holds grudges. We feel unworthy, and so we worship from afar. Something else that happens in the heart of a people who feel unworthy to approach God is they begin to look for substitutes. Someone else who will go into God's presence as a proxy and then come back and relay their experience. And this is something that we see modeled already in the life of Israel as well with regards to Moses. In Exodus chapter 20, the Lord extends an invitation to the entire nation. He says, I want to speak with you. 
But then they see the mountain, and it was a, quite a sight to behold. There was lightning, and there was thunder, and there was a dark cloud, and, and there was this glow, growing sound of a trumpet, and, and all the people trembled in fear. And it says again in Exodus 20 that they stayed at a distance and said to Moses, you go and speak to the Lord and then come and tell us and we'll listen to you, but don't have God speak to us or we'll die. Instead of going in and interacting with God directly, which is what the Lord wanted, they send Moses as their representative and they rely on him to tell them what God said. Instead of drawing near, they stay back. And this is where they start to live on secondhand faith. Instead of having their own personal, dynamic, living relationship with the Lord, they rely on someone else to relay God's heart to them. And, and don't we often do the same thing? I don't have the time, or I don't feel worthy, or I'm not equipped to meet with the Lord, or to, to pull things, extract truths from Scripture. So, Pastor, you just tell us what God says. And I'll come here. That's your job. And I understand that to a degree. You know, God does equip the, the body of Christ with anointed individuals, pastors and teachers that are gifted to, to, to share the heart of the Lord. And so we gather like this and there's, there's good in that, but it is no substitute for developing your own personal relationship with the Lord. God wants to meet with you. There are things that he wants to speak to you, times that he wants to, to just move in your life in a personal way. And so you've got to learn how to cultivate that. It's not something that you can delegate. It's something that you have to develop yourself. You see, the problem with learning to, to rely on somebody else is you can't experience intimacy secondhand. I can't have an intimate relationship with you through someone else. It requires face-to-face -face meeting. So too, intimacy always requires proximity. This is why we can't worship at a distance. You have to be close. Now, what Satan works hard to do is he works hard to convince us that we have no business drawing near. He wants you to believe that, that you need to stay back, that because of the, the sin in your life, that, that God doesn't want you. And yet the message of the gospel is through the shed blood of Jesus because of the cross of Calvary. We have confidence to enter into the very presence of the Lord. Someone say amen. Here's how the author of Hebrews puts it, and I want us to read this verse out loud. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Because of what Jesus did for you at the cross, you now have access to God. So don't settle for something less than that. Don't settle for second best. Don't settle for secondhand faith. Don't settle or be content to stand at a distance while you watch others enter in and draw near. The, the heart of the Father is that you would come in and that you would experience his presence for yourself because the Lord wants to speak to you just like he spoke to Moses. One man who learned this and got this was Joshua. We read about him and his experience in the second half of verse 11. It says, then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, the son of Nun, did not leave 
the tent. This third invitation from the Lord to us today is an invitation to linger in the presence. Everyone else might have been content to to stay back and worship from afar, but there was one glaring exception. Joshua, the son of Nun, followed his mentor Moses right into that tent. I mean, what kinds of things do you think he heard as he eavesdropped on those private conversations between God and Moses in that tent? What did he see within the cloud of Lord, the Lord's glory? We can only wonder. The text doesn't tell us. But one thing we do know is that being in the Lord's presence impacted and affected Joshua's life in profound ways. And I say that on the basis of what happened. You see, Moses would meet with the Lord and then he would depart from the tent, but not Joshua. He refused to leave. It says he would not depart. Earlier, we defined the word linger as a reluctance to leave. Don't you think that word perfectly describes Joshua's attitude with regards to the presence of the Lord? He's just like, where else can I go? This is everything I want. It's everything I was made for to just inquire in your temple, to behold your beauty, to sit at your feet, to soak and marinate my soul in your presence. Now, just so you know who Joshua was, Moses points out, by this time, he had become my aide. That means Joshua at this point is Moses' right-hand man. I suppose after the Lord tapped Joshua on the shoulder to lead the Israelites in that battle against the Amalekites, Moses saw something in this young man, and he elevated him. He promoted him and gave him this new position of the, as chief of his staff. I mean, Joshua is at this moment, the, the next in line, the right-hand man to the most powerful leader on the earth. He's the guy who's responsible for effectively helping Moses lead the nation. Now, in that position, as you might imagine, I'm sure Joshua had a lot of responsibilities. I'm sure his plate was full. The list of demands on his time, it had to be intense. Yet despite the many tasks that required his attention and the many errands that needed to be run, we find Joshua here lingering in the presence of the Lord, in no hurry to leave. And I I really want to stress this point because I think in my conversations with people, People like you. The number one reason that people often cite for why they don't spend more time with the Lord is, I just don't have the time. Maybe they point to someone like me and they're like, hey, it's, you know, you're blessed. This is basically your job to, to get up and read the Bible and listen to the Lord and worship. You know, that's, you're blessed. And I, I certainly am. And you think the demands on my time just don't leave any space. Now, while I'm sure you're busy, I wouldn't argue with that. We're so busy. I doubt you have more on your plate than Joshua. He's the chief of Moses' staff. He's helping lead the nation, yet he still finds time to linger in the presence of the Lord. And if he can find the time, so can too. So can you. You see, the truth is we all make time for the things that are truly important to us. I'm convinced that one of the devil's key strategies in in today's world is to just kind of keep us too busy to seek the Lord. It's been pointed out that if Satan can't succeed at making us bad, he'll settle for keeping us busy. Those words ring true, don't they? 
But if you're too busy to seek the Lord, then you're just flat out too busy. Martin Luther was a great leader in the early church. He was the father of the, the Protestant Reformation. He's the guy that nailed the 95 thesis to the, the door of the church there in Wittenberg. And it sparked this movement and a return to grace-based preaching and a personal relationship with the Lord. And so the demands on his time were intense. Yet with so much on his plate, he discovered that the only way to get through all the things on his to-do list was to spend more and not less time in prayer. Here's how he put it, and this is a quote from him. Work, work, work from morning until late at night. That resonates. In fact, he went on to say, I have so much to do that I shall have to spend the first three hours of my day in prayer. I've got so much to do, I've just got to spend three hours in prayer. Now that's counterintuitive and might seem counterproductive, and yet it is so dynamic and so beautiful in its application, because what Luther is essentially saying is the only way I'm going to get through what God has for me to do. You see, there's always going to be the tyranny of the urgent, these things that pull at us and vie for our attention. And, and the list of demands is never going to diminish. It's only going to grow and intensify with time. And, and so you need to be in the heart of the Father, know his heart and be in his presence so you can discern what are the doors you want me to walk through? And what are the ones you want me to leave closed? What are the, the conversations you want me to engage with? And what are the ones you want me to pull back in? Lord, what is it that you have for me to do? And as we think through what that looks like, I want to just leave you with a couple of practical tools for how you can better walk in and begin to experience the presence of the Lord. And we find all three of them tucked away in this beautiful verse in Psalm 37, verse 7. Let's go ahead and read that together out loud. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for him to act. Don't worry about evil people who prosper or fret about their wicked schemes. Three keys that will outline for us how to linger in God's presence. It starts with being still. Now, being still, learning how to be still and know that he is God, that's different than just carving out a quiet place. Quietness relates to your outer distractions. And those are pretty easy to eliminate. You know, just go climb into your car, take a drive, or get up earlier than everyone else, or find a, a closet, someplace where you can go to escape. And we can pretty easily eliminate those outside distractions and achieve quietness. Stillness, though, that's much more hard to obtain. Stillness is a quietness of soul. You know as well as I do that it can be completely silent around you, but you can be experiencing all kinds of noise and turmoil internally. And so the way you achieve stillness by is, is by, in a very intentional way, choosing to focus all of your thoughts and attention onto the Lord. It's pushing out all of those other voices, all of those other responsibilities, all of those other distractions. You know, if, if Eastern meditation is all about emptying your mind, I think biblical meditation is all about taking one thing and filling your mind with that thought and allowing it to just pervasively touch every corner of your being. And for us, that's okay. I'm intentionally in this moment. I'm not going to, I know the phone is ringing. I know there are emails to, to be answered. I know there are, there are duties and tasks that need, you know, me to, to handle them, but I'm going to, in this moment, just be still. 
And for me, I'll just wake up early in the morning and I'll just close my eyes or I'll look out my window as the sun is getting ready to rise and I'll just, I'll present myself to the Lord. And you can pray something like this. Here I am, Lord. And you just show up. And there will, you will get assaulted, I promise you, by all of these temptations, all of these distractions, all of these attacks. And you just, you just push them down. You push them out. You just choose stillness. You quiet your soul. And then you wait. You wait for the Lord to come. Again, this is not easy. It's obvious. It's simple. But just because it's simple doesn't make it easy. Waiting, in many ways, I, I think is one of the hardest parts of this whole experience of walking into and experiencing the presence of the Lord. Why? Because we've been conditioned by this society to, to want things and get things right away. I, I, I have read a statistic that our attention span is shrinking to the point where, you know, we have essentially the attention span of a goldfish. Congratulations, you know, and, and we're just constantly on the go. And, and we live in a microwave world where we have learned to expect and receive things on demand, right? But God says, I want you to wait. You can't microwave intimacy. And so you wait on the Lord. And, and that doesn't have to be a passive waiting, by the way. It can be an active waiting where you're in the word, where you're communing with the heart of the father. You might even be worshiping, but you're, the posture of your being is one of just presence. And you're saying, Lord, I'm here for you. And as you read the word, you're not just checking the box. You're not just getting through the daily devo, but you're truly looking for that word or that verse or that moment when God points to some part of the page and says, this is Rhema. This is a divine word for today for you. And so you wait. You don't move and you don't, you're not quick to go away. And then the third part is equally as challenging. You have to choose not to worry or fret. Sometimes, oftentimes, I think we'll spend time in prayer, but really all we've done is worry about something for 20 minutes. And then we just come back and we say we prayed about it. No wonder we leave just as anxious and just as depressed and just as fearful as we entered the Lord's presence because we haven't truly engaged the Lord, but we've just worried. And so the way to eliminate worry is to focus on the, the heart and the nature and the character of God. And then you wait and then he comes. But how do you know when he's come? I mean, will there be a light in the room? Will, will I hear a, a, a trumpet? I mean, what is that experience like? And it will change. And just like you have personal relationships, God wants to have a personal relationship with you. But sometimes when the Lord meets with me, oftentimes there's a sense of peace that I encounter. And it's like the burden that I come into his presence with just begins to lift. And there's a lightness. I was talking about with someone last night who had this experience. They're like, man, I just felt like the Lord drawing me in and there was just a lightness. That's the presence of the Lord. Other times there's a heaviness that settles on you. The word kabod or glory, it means weight. In a world filled with fluff, the, the presence of the Lord is something substantive and real and it might bring you to your knees. It might cause you to just feel the weight of the glory and you just are overwhelmed. It, God might lead you to, he might give you his heart for a, a circumstance or a, a situation or he might ask you to co-labor with him in prayer for something and, and that's the Lord and you learn how to discern him 
his presence. It's something that you grow in with practice like anything else. But here's one thing I can tell you. It's not something that you won't get. You will get it if you commit to it because you were designed to know and walk in and experience God's presence. He's given you all the tools and all the faculties that are required. This isn't like, you know, for professionals only. Don't try this at home. This is me saying, no, the Lord is inviting you to experience him, to know him, to hear his voice and to walk with him. It's what God designed you for. Amen. I'll say this as well. When you get in his presence, things change. In his presence are the keys to a thousand doors. In his presence are the answers to every question in your heart. In his presence are the solutions to all the problems that you face. We have questions. We have, we have problems. We, 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 have, we have all these things going on. And, and we need to know, Lord, is this the door that you're opening? And you find the answers to those things in the presence. Hearts are healed in his presence. Marriages get restored in his presence. Your soul gets refreshed. It's been designed to be refreshed in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 16 says that in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 9 talks about how our enemies are, are driven out in the presence of the Lord. I love that. And here's one more thing that you'll discover in the presence of the Lord. You are launched into your purpose when you get in his presence. God, why am I here? What's the point of this life? I, I work hard. I put food on the table, a roof over my, my family's head. But, but is there something more? And you wonder, God, why am I here? And it's as you spend time in the presence that you get launched into your purpose. And this isn't just me saying that. This is something we see play out in the life of Joshua. This is Deuteronomy 31, 14. Let's go ahead and read it together out loud. The Lord said to Moses, now the day of your death is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting where I will commission him. So Moses and Joshua came and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. I love this, this place where Joshua had learned to commune with the Lord and worship the Lord and linger in the Lord's presence. It becomes the launching pad into his calling, his commissioning and his purpose. This is years later. And so the Lord says, I want you to go back to the tent of meeting. And that's where I'm going to give Joshua his commissioning. And there is a plan and a purpose and a calling of God on each and every one of your lives. Where are you going to discover that? It's not just something you're going to stumble your way into. You have to seek it. And you do that in the presence of the Lord. So I think I'm asking these questions rhetorically, but do you want more peace? Do you want more love? Do you want more joy? Do you want more clarity? Do you want more direction? Do you want more victory? Do you want more of a settledness? Do you want more confidence? Do you want more courage? All of these things are wrapped up in this place called the presence. It's, it's not coming to the Lord so we can get stuff from him. It's coming to the Lord for himself. It's not about the gifts. It's about the giver. You say, I've tried this. I get in the word and it doesn't speak to me. Listen, we're going to walk into this right now. But what I'm hoping for is not an event. What I'm hoping to inspire today is a new lifestyle, right? If you'll make just subtle 
small changes, and you'll consistently walk in those rhythms and disciplines, I can guarantee you that over time, you will begin to experience more and more and more of God's presence in your life. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.